Hello, everybody, and welcome back to our What Do I Have to Do extravaganza. If you are just joining us, we have already talked all about how great What Do I Have to Do by Kylie Minogue is as a song. Let's have a little reminder. How good was that? That is an amazing song, and I'm never, ever, ever going to back down from the position. It's the best Kylie Minogue single ever. Agreed, agreed. But our work isn't done, as we often say. We've got a lot more to talk about when it comes to what do I have to do, don't we, Matt? We do. We're going to talk all about the visuals now, the amazing styling and that stunning, stunning video. Let's talk to the people who made it happen. Yes, as remarkable as the song and its various mixes are, which we talked about in part one, there's a whole other dimension to what do I have to do, the visual element, which takes in both the single cover and the music video, and they took Kylie's image in a much more fashionable direction than ever before. Yeah, Kylie was mixing in very stylish London circles by now, and that was heavily influencing her. She was quoted at the time as saying, I guess most of the people I spend my time with are in the fashion and photography circles rather than the music. Someone who came into Kylie's orbit via fashion was stylist David Thomas. Yeah, David is responsible for collaborating with Kylie on some of her most iconic looks, and I do not use that word lightly. If I say the words sexy ironing, you know what I'm talking about. David's had an amazing career, but working on this video was definitely a massive turning point for him. In fact, he says it's the exact point where everything took off, and it's easy to see why. David chatted to us at the end of a week in which he'd styled Lionel Richie, Dr. Dre and John Legend for the Grammys, popped over to Hawaii for some American Idol responsibilities and did some work with Charlie Puth. We were so glad he took the time to have a chat because he has some great memories of working on What Do I Have To Do, starting with how he first came into contact with Kylie. Here is David. People I've spoken to, like Nicole Benython, who did Better the Devil You Know, and, and Sharon McPhillamy, who was kind of in-house at PWL. I know Sharon. I remember Sharon very well. Yeah, they were saying there wasn't such a thing as a stylist. The artists would bring their own stuff to the shoot, or they'd just pull together some looks, and Nicole worked for a magazine. So by 1990, 91, which is when we're going to talk about, was that really the emergence of the celebrity stylist as we know it today? Yeah, I would say that it really kind of began. I was assisting people in 1988, people like Judy Blaine, who was famously styling Boy George and designing his jewellery at the time. And that's what led me to Kylie. But we can talk about that in a minute. But I was assisting him. He was doing artists like Boy George, Nella Cherry and... Uh, later on, Massive Attack. Um, but he was primarily like a uh, a jewel designer and he did a lot of editorial for ID magazine. So there was, I think that there was this moment when magazines started to be more interested in musicians and musicians would then be styled for the magazines and then those stylists would go ahead and style music videos. It really was the beginning of, of all of that. But it was a difficult time to get close because the fashion world hadn't really caught on. Whereas now... It's all about what celebrities wear your clothes. Back then, it was a real struggle to to get the fashion PRs or the fashion brands to lend clothes for musicians and especially music videos because the view was that they needed to, these samples needed to be available for the models to wear on the cover of magazines. So 
there was a few people that were kind of ahead of the game, if you like, and um, were willing to lend clothes. But it was certainly very different to as it as it is now. All right. So how did you come into contact with Kylie? So I was, as I, as I mentioned, I was assisting Judy Blame and Kylie was doing a cover for ID magazine. And Judy had begun to sort of encourage me to do my own work. And he he was offered Lisa Stansfield all around the world. And he he wasn't able to do it for whatever reason. So he suggested I do it. So I'd done a couple of music videos on my own, but I was still kind of under Judy's wing, if you like. So he was in charge of this shoot with Kylie. Uh, Robert Urban was the photographer. And Trudy, Trudy kind of labelled himself as creative director on the shoot, which is kind of a new thing. And therefore, I was labelled or credited, if you like, as the stylist, even though I was very much working under his creative direction. And not long after that was done and published, I got the phone call kind of out of the blue to say, would I style this music video? And I remember the moment really well. I was living in a basement flat in Notting Hill Gate and... I was so excited. I would. I, I was a big Kylie fan, and I I used to dance around the house all the time to like "Better the Devil You Know," and I was really into her. And I slammed my hand in the door because I was kind of so excited and almost broke my finger and essentially <laughs> maybe no, almost couldn't do the job. But I remember it so clearly. I was so excited, and I was such a big fan. And for me, it was just an, an amazing opportunity to show what I could do. I was 24 years old because we actually shot the video in 1990. I know it came mm. out in January 91. Yeah. So we shot it in the winter of 1990. And I'd only been in fashion for, or working in fashion, mostly as an assistant for two years. So it really was a big break for me. Because Better the Devil You Know was the little black dress, the kind of red wig and the silver hot pants. Very, it was a step, but it was kind of club wear. Yeah, it wasn't like runway fashion. It wasn't like editorial fashion. I, honestly, I was just dying to get my hands on her, you know, to do real fashion, if you like. And did you get a sense that that's where Kylie wanted to go? She wanted to go in, into runway fashion? Yeah, I mean, at the time it was like, I mean, after it happened, after the event, it was all like, you know, all the headlines were like highly sexed and and, and, and all of that. And it was kind of sexy and it was like, She'd kind of it, it kind of transformed the way the public saw her. She'd gone from girl next door to sexy pop idol, really. And I think it just came at a time when she was kind of growing up and experimenting with different things. She was dating Michael Hutchins at the time, um, so stuff was going on in her life. So I guess, like any of us, when you escape from your town, in it, however you want to describe it, she found herself in London. And I think she was just pretty much free to be whatever she wanted to be. So were you nervous or did you take it in oh your stride? God. I was so nervous. I, I, I actually, this is one of my favorite videos I've ever done. And I've done almost 300 in my career. But yeah, so I remember a lot. But the night before, I was literally uh, throwing up, leaning over the toilet and being sick because I was so nervous. Would she like it? Would the director like it? I don't know, everything that could possibly go wrong was going on in my head. You know, the clothes aren't <laughs> going to fit and she's going to hate it and it's going to be a terrible, you know. I, I, yeah, I was nervous to the point that I was throwing up, yeah.
So what discussions did you have with Kylie about the video and, and what she was looking for and, and what you would be able to bring to it? Do you remember what, I guess, the brief was? There weren't any. Uh, we, there was a brief. Normally what happens is you get sent the treatment, which is like the script for the video. And sometimes if you're lucky, you'll get like uh, sketches of the, what they call the storyboards, so the, the different scenarios and everything. Um, but there were no meetings or fittings before. Now, like if I, if I did a, if I do a job now in Los Angeles, the way the business has evolved and moved on, we always have a fitting and we have conversations with the director and the, and maybe the record company and the management. We'll meet the artist. We might even present a storyboard of our own and we would have a fitting with a tailor and all the outfits would be decided. But back then there was no meeting with prior with Kylie to discuss the clothes. I remember. I mean, I, I had the, the treatment, but that's, that's it. There was, no, there was nothing in advance, really. It was just me with turning up with a bunch of clothes, and I was dressing everyone on that set. Right, wow. Okay. Yeah. She wore nine outfits in that video, and at mm. the time, that was, that was kind of unheard of and very extra. So, because <laughs> we shot for two days, that's unusual, but multiple locations. I remember we were in Covent Garden for that scene that could be Paris with the fairground leaning over the balcony, but that was one shot. Then we were in a studio where we did the kind of nightclub scene and the kind of main shot of Kylie against the white psych in the long dress. I remember we were in a, they rented a big house, like a this grand house opposite the park in Clapham Common. And that house had a swimming pool in it. So mm. we did the swimming pool scene and where she's on the sofa and she gets up and walks to the window cut to Covent Garden. We did that in there as well. And then we were on we were on the banks of the Thames, which I think was near the photo studio. But that's essentially four locations over two days. Yeah. So you went off and got a whole bunch of clothes that you thought would work? Yeah, I went to Paris, actually. And I went to visit Terry Mugler. They were very friendly to me. I had met Terry Mugler through Boy George and Judy Blame. And I knew Alex, the PR, and um, they very kindly agreed to lend me some clothes. I also contacted, there was a PR company at the time called Lynn Frank's PR. Now, Lynn is the, uh, the fashion PR, the big fashion PR from the 80s who started London Fashion Week, and Absolutely Fabulous is based on her. She was representing celebrities and fashion designers, and she was one of the first to kind of understand the the benefits of kind of cross-pollinating, if you like, having celebrities at fashion shows and having them wear her fashion designer's clothes. So she represented a designer called Catherine Hamner. And we also used a lot of Catherine Hamner in the video. I went to Paris and I, 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 I would have flown because we didn't have the Eurostar then. So I literally had time to fly to Paris, make do some appointments, gather a, a bunch of clothes and jewellery, do the same thing in London, and then turn up on, on the first day with everything. No fitting in advance. And hope that it worked. Yeah, that was it. Just hope it worked. No wonder I was nervous. <laughs> <laughs> it's really, I mean, it kind of feels like flying by the seat of your pants. Yeah, I mean, there's so much that couldn't have worked out. But it was one of those kind of magical things where w the clothes were great and they, they really add to the narrative of the film. And obviously... The director was into it and obviously Kylie was into it. I mean, I, I still run into her. I saw her recently and, you know, we always talk about it. So in, in terms of, I guess, the things you chose, were you thinking sexy, sophisticated fashion? I don't think so much. I think definitely sexy. 
I wanted it to be super fashion. I wanted it to feel like like a kind of supermodel. I wanted it to have that kind of like fashion edge. Sophisticated, no, not really. Okay. But just, you know, edgy, sexy and like runway fashion. I really wanted to transform her do something that people had never seen and i was given this great opportunity because it, she was almost like a blank canvas really at that point she hadn't really ever experimented with with fashion in this way so because in my mind i would have thought that you would have been told this is what i want do this but it's basically it, it came from you yeah i mean I, I, the thing about kylie is she she knows about stuff i mean after this video later on i took her to paris to to her first fashion show we went to Gautier and Jean-Paul Gautier show and we did a few other things but she always was very opinionated about stuff so she would have been into it and she would have agreed with me do you know what I mean but it wasn't just the clothes it was the the multiple wigs and the makeup changes and the sets and everything and the fact that it was mostly in black and white that made it all come together in such a magical way sometimes if you just let people do their thing then the magic can happen you know because it i don't think any any of us could have planned out that it would be so special i don't think anyone could have foreseen that that would happen but i think it was just a bunch of creative people being allowed to be creative and collaborating with her now you mentioned the wigs were you involved with the wigs or was there a hairstylist who kind of looked after that side of things um i think well charlie green definitely did the makeup and she probably did the hair as well so I think that at the point was we would probably, you know, we would go through and go, oh, this would be great for that. And it kind of became like she, the, the characters were all kind of, and they were characters really. They were all kind of based on like female Hollywood, you know, movie star goddesses, if you like. There's a, a, there's a bit of Bridget Bardot in there. There's, there's a little bit of Sophia Loren in there. There's a bit of Gina Lodger Brigitte, there's a bit of Elizabeth Taylor. And, and I think that the, we just worked really well to kind of match up the outfits with the wigs and the makeup and the clothes and everything. Those are some great memories of the whole experience, but let's hear David now talking about the specific looks that Kylie sported through this iconic video. And he remembers them all. Here he is. The dress in the pool, which we don't see a lot of, but it's got the nice kind of details on, on the shoulder. Yeah, I knew she was going to be doing stuff in that swimming pool. And actually, that's a swimsuit, a one-piece swimsuit, um, a black beaded swimsuit by a designer called Liza Bruce kind of traditional style that you can imagine but it had black jet beading on it and it just worked brilliantly there it was it was able to get wet and keep its form and everything and obviously had that extra glamour and work with light so it was just this very unusual piece uh i don't think she's in business anymore liza bruce but she used to do very glamorous swimwear that was mostly just for kind of standing around the pool having cocktails in the you know, in the south of France or something, but that came from there, yeah. The and I'm going to say words, and it's probably not the right words, but yeah, I, I've called it the, the black bustier with like the feathery right top, which is where she walks out onto the balcony. So that was a kind of all-in-one corset body thing from Terry Moogler, and the the feather boa thing. I think it it looks like a boa, but it's it's more like a kind of one of those kind of marabou chiffon house coats if you like. And I think it came from a sex shop. So it's like, yeah, it's a chiffon kind of house coat that's see-through black with black 
kind of feather trim around it and the cuffs. Again, I'm calling it a jumpsuit, but in the dancing scene where she's got kind of the big chunky, I don't know if it's a bracelet or if it's even a necklace. That is, yeah, that's Terry Mugler jewellery. It was big crystals. And that is Catherine Hamnett. It, it almost looks like a kind of, it's like a halter neck with like a tight mini skirt and it's all one piece. Yeah, that is Catherine Hamnett. The, what I call the tattoo dress, which is the dress with the low back and you can see the tattoo. I don't remember where that was from, but it would have been from one of the fashion PRs that we talked about in London, though. It didn't come from Paris. And that's when she's got, that wig was red, actually. So it was almost kind of you know, a little bit Linda Evangelista kind of supermodel vibe, do you know what I mean? But a bit of the Hollywood siren as well. And she's got that kind of panther on her back. I remember Charlie, Charlie Green, the makeup artist, drew that by hand on her back, yeah. Okay, the ironing outfit. Terry Moodler. And I've since tried to locate that because they have an archive in the south of France and that outfit's missing. I recently did a book to raise money for the Prince's Trust and uh, we were going to ask Kylie to be photographed in that now, but it, it doesn't exist. It's, it's missing, it's lost, stolen, I don't know. But it's from the uh, Terry Moodler uh, 1990 autumn winter collection for me it was just high camp it was almost kind of like a, a french maid's outfit but fashion do you know what i mean and it was a runway piece that never went into production and it just seemed to be perfect for that scenario and it was actually my favorite scene probably my favorite outfit in the video and it's, it's only such a short time i know i watched it back today it's so quick but everyone remembers it because it's so like wow yeah, and no, it's kind of iconic. Yeah, it's Moogler. Okay, now the black dress with the splits up the side, I believe, is Bon Choix. Okay, so this is interesting. I came from a small town in the country, and anything that wasn't brand new just was horrific for me. Vintage wasn't really a thing at, at that time. Do you know what I mean? And Kylie brought that dress, and it was vintage. And I was kind of horrified. I was like, ooh, because for me, I like, like secondhand. And if you wore secondhand clothes, it meant you couldn't afford new clothes, right? At the time, I was just, I was kind of like, what? You, what? You're going to wear an old dress, like a secondhand dress? So she got that in Australia and she, that was from, you know, something that she had. But it worked brilliantly, actually. I mean, because it kind of makes that shot because the slits at the side and the way she's positioned and the, the way she moves her legs with her arms in the air and her knees poking out. It's kind of amazing. But at the time, like I say, vintage was, was not something that I understood. And I just, I was really horrified <laughs> until I saw it on screen. Right. Um, and then to finish off the, the two leopard skin uh, things, there's the one with the red dress where she's rolling around the floor. And then there's the final scene where she's walking with Zane and she's got the coat on. I don't, I don't know if when she's on the floor, it's, it's a coat or a rug. It's the same coat in both. Okay. She's wearing Catherine Hamner and the, the coat was Catherine Hamner, although I've seen Kylie talk about that. And actually, she sent me a message saying, I wish I still had that vintage coat, but it wasn't vintage. It was Catherine Hamner. Because it's vintage now. <laughs> it is, exactly. Um, so the, it's kind of like a pinky red chiffon dress that she's wearing. Catherine Hamner, the, the fur coat is Catherine Hamner. Now, when we get to the scene by the river, she's wearing a custom Rigby and Pella PVC corset and... That was the same corset that she had worn on the cover of ID magazine right? that we'd already shot. And we put it with these just black PVC leggings. I think they, all, they came from a sex shop. But you, you, you missed out one, the white pyjama top. Oh, of course, of course, in the bed. 
So that was just mine. Somebody had gifted me a set of silk pajamas from Hong Kong and I thought it'd be good for the bed scene. And so, yeah, she just wore the top, not the bottoms. And I took it back afterwards. I still have it. Yeah, it's just a white silk pajama top from Hong Kong. So that makes nine looks, yeah. Okay, with the styling for the What Do I Have To Do video sorted, the only thing left to do was shoot the damn thing. A key part of the legacy of this single is, of course, that amazing video. And just like the song itself, it is nearly universally loved by fans. It's my favourite one of Kylie's, and it takes the growth and the themes evident in Better The Devil You Know and just supercharges them. It's a barrage of glamorous and sexualised imagery that would have been unthinkable in a Kylie video just 18 months prior. The seeds of this video can be traced back to the high fashion magazines Kylie was now devouring. She wrote this in her book, La La La. When I spoke to the video director, David Hogan, on the phone, he asked me what style I was into. That was easy, Italian Vogue. There was a particular issue that I had in mind that was bulging with black and white photographs of impossibly beautiful and glamorous women. He knew it and was in love with it too, so we made a video where I looked like as many of the screen icons as possible in three and a half minutes. Our plagiarism was unapologetic and I stepped into a predetermined world of sexy and had fun. With that much artifice, it was easy not to take it too seriously, unquote. And so was born Kylie's homage to the joys of tattoos, wigs and eyebrow pencils, as well as old school screen icons like Elizabeth Taylor and Brigitte Bardot. She even made ironing look incredibly appealing, as you said, Gavin. And then there were those lesbian suggestions. Kylie recalled to journalist Mark Andrews in 1994, that's the video where my manager Terry was just flicking through the pages of a magazine, not reading it. And he's like, are we finished with the lesbian scene yet, Kylie? And I'm like, oh, Terry, don't worry about it. Now, when I spoke to director David Hogan on Zoom, he went into more detail about making the video, which, as we heard from David Thomas, took two 18-hour days in wintry London and crammed in all those fashionable looks. David Hogan had already been making music videos for years with some of the biggest names in showbiz, like Diana Ross, Prince and Rod Stewart. But he remembers his work with Kylie fondly. And that also includes the videos for Shocked and Finer Feelings. Let's hear from David Hogan now. How did you end up connecting with Kylie in the first place? Uh, to be honest, uh, I have no idea. It just I know that, that they offered, offered the project to me and I uh, wrote a concept and they liked it. And off we went to London. Yeah, it was uh, one of those jobs I didn't have to bid on. I just they hired me, period. So that was nice. So, you know, it's usually it's a writing competition. In this instance, it was uh, just to, you have the job. You listen to the song a thousand times. I mean, you know, have a few drinks, listen to it, wake up, you know, listen to it in the shower, on the car, smoke a joint, listen to it. You know, just listen to it with, from every every uh, point of view as far as, the, you know, the concept is concerned, whether it's, uh, you know, high concept or just a straight up uh, performance. You still, I have to know, I had to have that song in a loop in my head. What did you think of the song? I mean, were you familiar with Kylie's music at all before that point, or was this your introduction to her music? No, that was pretty much my, uh, my introduction. I can't recall if I was aware of her. So what did you think of that song? I liked it. I mean, I, the only songs I turned down is one that I can't listen to a hundred times. You know, it's just, if you don't like the song, yeah, you shouldn't be doing it. But I liked it, you know. I fell in love with her, of course, the minute I met her. She's a delightful person and sweet as she can be. Quite the professional as well, as young as she was. Real pro camera, that's for sure. She knew what she was doing. 
So what discussions did you have about the video ahead of filming? Do you, do you remember at all what how the concept came to Because I guess it was very inspired by things like Italian Vogue and classic Hollywood icons. Yeah. Do you remember the discussions you had with Kylie or with the label ahead of getting onto the set? John and I sat down, I think, at dinner and just went over the, the uh, script, the treatment. I'm not sure if I had to, and I'm sure I had the hot shot list, but I'm pretty sure, pretty sure we, uh, I went over the script with her and she was, it was okay. Everything was okay. She didn't have any changes she wanted. She was just, uh, trusted me and was just from listening. And, uh, the look just, I don't, I just had that look in mind the entire time. I think it's the first time I listened to the song, I started seeing those images. So the, the images of, yeah, Hollywood glamour and, you know, very stylized. Yeah, you look, you know, I usually look through magazines, you know, listen to songs through magazines and, you know, photo books, you know, coffee table photo books from Helmut Newton to whoever. Um, so you just kind of gather that, those ingredients, so to speak, and uh, that's where the, the finished product comes up to a, a level that you're happy with. You know, you just kind of keep, like, kneading clay. You just keep working on it the entire time until, you know, they uh, pry it out of your hands in uh, post-production, you know. So it's a very energetic video, quick cuts between scenes and compared to Finer Feelings, which we'll get to later. What do I have to do is very, very quick, very bit of this, a bit of that, and then some dancing and, and lights flashing. Was that inspired by the club feel, the dance feel of the song, that it had to have movement and it had to have energy? Definitely. Oh, yes. That dictated the whole thing, really. That uh, The bass beat, the uh, and then the synth. I don't know, something about that just evoked... Uh, some of those images just purely from the listening to the song. You want the, the action to complement the music or the certain uh, lyric, or it just has to move like the, like the song moves, simply put. Uh, and then the, the look, you know, brush stroke will go along with whatever chord or run or whatever in the music. So you really kind of live and breathe that song until you're finished. Now, as well as the glamour, there's a lot of sexual energy in What Do I Have To Do? Was that part of the brief, that this was going to be a sexy video? It was obvious when, once we went did walk through, it was going to be sexy. That wasn't by accident, that's for sure. This was like, whoa, look at Kylie. It was, it was a big step. Were you conscious of that? No, not at all. So it just felt like this is the right thing to do with this song? Yeah, it was just... You know, her personality and the music, that's all it took. <laughs> Come up with that concept and the look. Now, it was all black and white, except for there's a couple of, of shots. There's a close-up shot with the bright pink makeup and then there's the shot where she's rolling around on the leopard skin rug and she's got a red dress on and they're the only kind of pops of color in the video was that did you have that in mind from the outset that it'd be black and white but there'd be a couple of those touches oh yes uh the shot on the floor that was just one particular section i don't think i used it more than once or twice dinner cut color a lot of red companies seemed like at the time they were sort of afraid of uh, black and white at one point that wasn't the case here, and it was strictly planned from from uh, the conception of the look. What do you remember about the pool scene? Yeah, it was uh, it's hard to find a swimming pool, an indoor swimming pool in London. I don't know why it was so hard, but we needed certain availability, certain uh, elements 
to be able to use. Actually, it was in a home. It's rather an unusual setup, but this pool in, indoors. The scariest thing was lighting it. We had an underwater light that scared the hell out of me. I was really hesitant to even put her in the water at that point. I said, this, ooh, this is you know electricity and water. Uh, but it worked out fine, but uh, that was a little scary. And uh, it was still cold. The pool was heated, but not very well. So she was, when I say she's a trooper, she's a trooper. She was shivering and, you know, you hate doing that to somebody, but, you know, here's the plan. And she was, you know, just like I said, a real pro and just Marines hitting the beach. And she was one of the Marines, you know, let's get this shot. So it was at somebody's house, did you say? So it was someone's own indoor pool, right? Yeah, it wasn't, because uh, we had to be able to black everything out. The pool, you know, because it was supposed to be in this ink, you know, ink black water. Yeah, it was really strange, kind of strange because the house wasn't that big. It was maybe a you know pretty modest three bedroom with indoor pool. It was kind of weird. As you do. And she was singing. Was the music playing double speed or or something for that sequence? I think I've seen some footage where for those sequences she was having to lip sync double because the music was going faster. No, we did a few of those. Not too many, but yeah, few. And with ramping speed too in the club scene where she's. Kneeling next to him against the wall and going through the dancing legs. I think that was, I forgot how we, I think we shot that in, in say, 36 or 48 frames and then we ramped it uh, in post. So she would be singing double speed, but we could, you know, ramp it up to normal speed, 24 frame speed. So we, I just played with uh, those kind of speed ramps quite a bit in that video, if I remember correctly. And that's to give more of a sense of excitement, or why do you use that trick as a, as a video director? A certain sound in the song, like this should be slow motion. Now we're, the action is in the shot is ramping up, so we'll ramp up the speed as well, you know, just to mimic the, the song. That's, not, that's the only reason to use it, actually. Otherwise, you know, just play around if it doesn't work with the music. The other specific scene that stands out in my mind is the ironing scene. It's the sexiest ironing, I think, ever committed to film. What do you remember about that? <laughs> I don't know. Again, that was something in the song. I guess you say it was tongue-in-cheek. You know, it's what would I have to do? When, well, women have to cook, sew, and clean, uh, I guess. <laughs> what about the casting of Zane O'Donnell? Yeah, we just uh, did a casting session in London, and I picked him, and she liked him, so... Easy as that. I like his look. The fact that he used to be a boxer, you can see that in his face. Just unusual look. Very brooding. Yes, exactly. And so the video shot done all the post-production, all the effects, the speeding up, all that kind of stuff. Was everyone happy with the result? Did it have to go back to the edit at all? Or? Not that I recall. I don't recall. They pretty much gave me a, a free pass as far as the, the cut. Yeah, I don't remember any. If there were any changes, it was minor, and it's usually uh, my changes that, did, you know, at the end of the day, it's almost like an ed for editing for me. It's like you can never finish it. <laughs> you can always improve it. So you just have to cut it off at some point, just stop, <laughs> you know. It's good. Leave it alone. Did you get any feedback from the record labels, PWL in the UK and Mushroom in Australia? Did you hear from them at all, or was that something, nothing you dealt with? All that I heard was that they liked it. So they really liked it. So that was, I can't remember one change, to be honest with you, not a single change. Of course, record companies, you know, somebody's oh, got to put their two cents in and, and uh, 
certain departments, but uh, it didn't happen with this one. And just smooth sailing all the way. With what do I have to do in Shocked, the phrase sex Kylie has been used. Were you conscious of that, that this was this major step in her evolution, that she was suddenly this sexy sex symbol? No, not at all. I didn't think it was, you know, just after meeting her and, and listening to her music, it's just, I thought it was sexy. So I thought she was sexy. She is sexy. <laughs> you know. She embraced that side of things. Yeah. And, and yeah. you were happy to. It's, it's funny because it, I, I guess people think it was done deliberately, almost cynically. Okay, let's make these two videos sexy. But it sounds like it was quite organic. It was, absolutely. I've never, never heard that that, that turned her image around slightly or added another aspect to her personality and talent the sexual support i just she's just i don't know it's just yeah it was organic hmm. completely and what i like making six sexy videos I mean, maybe that's why they came to you maybe fascinating stuff and aren't we eternally grateful that kylie was not electrocuted in that pool <laughs> yes one interesting easter egg in this video is the presence of kylie's little sister danny who is pretty anonymous as a gyrating blonde extra in the dance scenes at the time, the two were widely claimed to be feuding. Let's hear from Danny now talking about that shoot. It was Kylie's idea. We just wanted a bit of a giggle. Um, she wrote a song for me for my album, which was like to say to everyone um, that the rumours weren't true, that we hated each other. And then so we decided, she came up to me the other day and said, why don't you be in my video? So, but I'm going to have a wig on and stuff, so you won't recognise me. You will, but you won't. The final piece of the visual package was the single cover for What Do I Have To Do, which featured shots from that ID magazine shoot David Thomas mentioned. It's definitely my favourite Kylie single sleeve. The photography is incredibly cool and the graphic design is totally on point. It absolutely conveys how Kylie wanted to be seen in 1991 and it really couldn't have been further from the perm and the rubber washing up glove of Wouldn't Change A Thing. It's hard to imagine those two sleeves even belong to the same artist. Kylie's wish to control her own visual image goes all the way back to the start of her pop career when she and her manager, Terry Blamey, were horrified to see her face on unauthorised merchandise like pillowcases or cheap biographies. They decided to take control by owning all of her new photos going forward under the Minogue family trust, KDB. Let's now hear in detail from David Thomas about how one of those photos from that ID shoot wound up on the cover and just how involved Kylie was in removing from public view any images that didn't fit her vision. The single cover was the Betty Jackson striped dress. Did that also come from that same ID shoot? Yes, absolutely. We, that was part of the same shoot. Robert Urban was the photographer. Betty Jackson was the dress and Lynn Frank's PR, who I've talked about, was the PR for Betty Jackson. That's how that happened. It was just a case of, well, we've got this fantastic shot. Let's just use it for the single. Yeah. Now, the interesting thing about Kylie is that she did something that I'd never seen before or very often since. She was in complete control of her image and what photographs were got out there. So there aren't a ton of pictures out there. I remember sitting down. Uh, or her sitting down, looking through, at the time, there were, um, we had like negatives and um, she would pick the shots herself that were approved or could be used. And the ones that weren't, she would cut up with scissors and put in the bin. So And so she owned the rights to the pictures, not the photographer. So in some way, they must have done a buyout with the photographer. She owned 
Kylie Minogue owned the pictures and she would have approved that. That's how it happened. Looking back at this era, Kylie later admitted she was determined to shatter old perceptions, no matter the cost. I was out of control for a while, she was quoted as saying. I was rebelling against everything I couldn't do before. I had to get it out of my system. I was rebelling against being labelled a good girl all the time. At the time, I don't think it felt to me like Kylie was out of control. This felt like a savvy next step to follow the progress she'd already made with Better Devil You Know and Step Back in Time. For me, the What Do I Have To Do video felt very stylish, very fashionable, sexy, sure, although I was probably looking at Zayn more on that front. But it didn't feel over the top or like she'd lost the plot. There's a lot of dancing in the video, I like those scenes the best, and all the lingering looks and rolling round in silky PJs with bed hair felt sexually charged, yeah, but not confronting. Maybe I was in that sweet spot of Kylie's fan base at that point where it was the right direction for her to head for me. Well, this video was heavily edited for kids TV in the UK, which may have affected its commercial performance. It got to six in Britain, seven in Ireland, and 11 in Australia, which many would argue was far less than it deserved. Far less. Maybe it just reflected the fact that Neighbours Mania was now ancient history, or maybe Kylie's new adult image alienated the youngest part of her audience. Mm. But I completely loved this release. I was almost 19, so my interest definitely included what was on display here. And even Kylie's old enemies were now changing their tune, with the song making it to NME's top 40 tracks of 1991. The video definitely cemented what the media agreed to call the Sex Kylie era, and the start of all the relentless comparisons to Madonna. Because, of course, Madge was the only woman who ever grew up and took an interest in sex. <laughs> Pete Waterman recalled in his book, I Wish I Was Me, quote, Towards the end of the time Kylie was working with us, she was discovering a whole load of new ambitions setting her sights at becoming the new Prince or Madonna. What I found amazing was that she was outselling Madonna four to one, but still wanted to be her. Everyone wanted to be Kylie Minogue, except Kylie Minogue, who wanted to be Madonna, unquote. For her part, Kylie rejected the comparisons, insisting, I'm certainly not trying to imitate Madonna. I'm continuing to develop my own style. Hear, hear, Kylie. If you think about it, What Do I Have To Do came out not that long after Madonna's Justify My Love, which was much more sexual and controversial. That video might have opened my eyes somewhat, but I didn't ever associate what Kylie was doing with what Madonna was doing. They were releasing very different music and imagery in my mind. I guess if I had to come up with some kind of comparison, I'd liken What Do I Have To Do to Open Your Heart which coincidentally is my favourite Madonna song of all time. Both of those tracks, What Do I Have To Do and Open Your Heart, are pop dance songs from a pivotal third album, both with videos that played with sexuality but in a fun way. But, you know, from physical to strut, female artists had been playing with these kinds of elements for years, and Kylie was just the latest to take things in a more mature direction. Anyway, that's my take on it. Yeah, well, while Kylie did make certain deliberate choices to bury her earlier teen pop image with this release, it would have been far more contrived to have her dancing around in a perm and a bubble skirt, singing about silly crushes on teenage boys. Walking around a room! <laughs> uh, well, I don't think anyone would have been buying that either, to be no. honest. As she said while promoting the song on UK TV show The Ozone, it would be a lie to say I'm still the girl next door from three years ago, because I'm not. But pretty much in my videos and records and pictures and so forth, now it's me. 
And it's the first time that my image has been all in my hands, and I've been in control of what I'm doing, so I'm having a ball, unquote. Despite his nerves, David Thomas also had a ball working on What Do I Have To Do? And he joins us one last time now to reflect on the impact of the video and what it means to him. So when it all came together, and you've kind of alluded to this already, did it feel like the video was a big step forward and, and even a risk in some ways? Yeah, it did, actually. I mean, it, because if you think of her, what was considered her fan base, this was kind of like taking a big chance, really, to cross over into maybe a more kind of grown up, bigger audience. There hadn't been that that many years between locomotion and what do I have to do, really? And yet the transformation was quite big and it just felt kind of epic. Like a uh, it wasn't that normal to, to do a two day shoot. So obviously there was, there was money behind this. Like I say, there must've been money because I was able to fly to Paris in advance and, and get clothes and everything. So it felt like it was a shift. And I think at the time we were just all excited and super proud of, of how it looked, you know? We just hoped that people would love it, basically. And moving her into that fashion space, how readily did that world accept her? And and I guess pop stars in general, was the fashion industry a bit like, oh, this is our turf? Or were they like, oh, this is great? It depends. On the whole, like the there were a few fashion designers that were embracing it. And I think that at the forefront of that was Versace, Gianni Versace himself. He was kind of like fascinated by celebrity and the power of celebrity and encouraged celebrities or paid for celebrities to come to his shows and in paris mugler was really into to that and like i say lim franks in london but the actual magazines themselves not so much like the the traditional magazines when we went to gautier jean paul gautier he he put us kylie and i in a box the fashion show was in the cirque d'hiver which is this old circus building and there were little boxes and lots of seats but in the in the box next to us was british vogue and i can remember that at the time the editor of vogue turning and saying who is that casty girl oh yeah, yeah. right so that that gives you a sense of you know the kind of because uh fashion magazines had always been traditionally about about models and hmm. fashion and then there was these you know celebrities kind of making intrusions into the fashion world. So it's very beginning of that. So the designers were excited about it and encouraging of it. The big magazines, like the traditional magazines, not ID, the face and all that, not them, but the other, the traditional ones, they were not very accepting at all of this world, you know. Do these still hold a special place in your heart and kind of stand out as, okay, yeah, they were important? Yeah, they. It, it was a really, really special time in my life. And uh, what do I have to do is is the favorite music video I've ever done, just uh, because it's her, because of the way it looks, because she changes nine times, because of the fashion. There's everything I love, you know, Moogler. It takes me back to that that kind of time, really. Yeah, it, it, shocked. I don't think about so often. I think what do I have to do is like, I, if ever I'm asked, what's the favorite music video you ever done i say that one and i'm really fond of her i mean yeah it's something about i mean we were quite similar in age and we kind of connected in that way it was a moment where I, my career kind of really took off because of this video i think so for for all those reasons plus the way it looks plus it's kylie it's just so special to me that video and that period of time and you've, you've used the phrase sex kylie and that was used a lot after especially what do i have to do 
is part of you kind of pleased that you're partly responsible for sex, Kylie? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, absolutely. To get this major opportunity to do this video with a somebody who I was a fan of anyway and with such a great director and have a, such an amazing end result. I mean, I, I was watching it this morning before we spoke and it, I still think it's fabulous. I don't think it's particularly dated and and i know yeah i'm aware that it's kind of like a a fan favorite i do see that around sometimes so yeah i'm super proud of it yeah we were just two very young people like having this whole world exposed to us really at the same time thanks so much david that was an amazing interview in fact one of my favorite ones we've ever had on this podcast the passion and the intensity and you know the sheer love for the product that came out at the end really really powerful thanks david yes that was really great we'll hear more from david when we get to shocked and he also worked with another artist who came back to pwl in 1992 To me, this whole moment will never, ever be bettered. It's a celebration of young adulthood and sex and fun, and the track captures everything that was exciting about music at the dawn of the brand new decade. It also went on to mark an important pop cultural landmark for Australia, with Kylie performing the song at her first ever Sydney Mardi Gras back in 1994. It really can't be understated just what an effect that moment had on both the gay community in Australia as well as the wider culture here. It was Kylie, now in her post-PWL era, standing with and acknowledging her gay fans, and she was doing so with one of the songs we had most passionately taken to our hearts. That performance has become legendary, with so many people getting in contact with me in the lead-up to this episode to talk about what it meant to them. My friend Andrew even describes it as one of the greatest moments of his life. And Kylie loves and understands the gravity of this record too. It's rarely off her live set list and has featured in most of her tours. And I'm always thrilled to hear it at those shows. What do I have to do is a 10 out of 10 for me. Yeah, I don't know what it would take for another song to replace What Do I Have To Do as my all-time favourite because it's held that position since late 1990 and it gets a regular spin in my house and on my headphones all the time. It's also part of my annual New Year's Eve three-song ritual where I play Dina Carroll's Perfect Year because it's New Year's Eve and hopes are high. I also play my favourite song from the previous year and I end with What Do I Have To Do, my favourite song of all time. A great way to ring in the new year. Rules and lists. So, so very you, Gavin. (laughs) Okay. Now, we might have hit the pinnacle of our journey in some respects, but our next episode is an action-packed one. Yeah, it's a pretty symbolic turning point for Saw as they finish up with their first major act, Hazel Dean, while Jason Donovan's career takes another major turn and we hear the second part of the Delage story. Yes, it's a big episode and coming up after that we have Shocked, we have Boy Crazy, so much to look forward to. Also, we have the bonus material, and for this episode, there will be extended interviews with Miriam Stockley, including her talking about her praise hit. You can hear more from David Thomas, David Hogan, and Peter Day. Head to chartbeats.com.au slash saw for all of that, where you can subscribe if you haven't already. Okay, Matt, what an exciting episode this was, a major milestone, something we've both looked forward to, and now I'm excited to continue the journey. What about you? 
Definitely, definitely. I mean, it's going to be hard to top what do I have to do, but we've got some great stuff ahead. So all steam ahead, and I'm going to go off and listen to what do I have to do. Yeah, I might do that too. Okay, see you, everybody. Bye. Bye.